0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Student Stock Security Podcast. My name is Pranav Kuntupalli, and I'm a sophomore economics and math major. Today, we're launching a new mini series, Meet the NDISC Fellows. NDISC, or Notre Dame International Security Center, brings together leading scholars, soldiers, and students together to learn more about American national and international security. My hope is to introduce some of the cool people at NDISC and to everyone on campus and at the center. I'm beyond excited to kick the series off with our first guest, Major Greg Scott of the U.S. Marine Corps, who is also the War College Fellow at NDISC.
1: Hey, Greg. Good morning. Hi, Pranav. Good morning. Just the quick disclaimer. You know, uh, the views and opinions, observations, everything that I have uh, expressed in the podcast and will express uh, are those of myself, my own. They don't reflect any official policies or positions of the Marine Corps, Department of Defense, or the U.S. government as a whole. We're glad to have you here. Can you introduce yourself to us and the audience? Absolutely. My name is Greg Scott. I'm from Austin, Texas, originally. I'm currently in the Marine Corps serving on this fellowship. But briefly, what kind of got me to this point is I started and did my undergrad at Texas A&M University about an hour and a half east of Austin. UT was near and dear to my heart growing up, but it was too close to home. You know, mom and dad are still in the area, so I had to get out of that area. Didn't plan on the Marine Corps. You know, it was not in the grand scheme for me as I was you know, working my way through college, taking my time. My undergrad took almost a decade and I'm not a doctor. <laughs> 7 years at A&M. I enjoyed a lot of my time down there, but I was working for a company called TDI Brooks Offshore Oil Exploration. Enjoyed it very much and kind of everything was falling into a line for either working for them long term or a career path in the construction industry, which I had a lot of experience in. So Kind of right before I graduated, kind of last sort of minute thing, decided I'd try the Marine Corps instead. Didn't have any real, you know, draw. My generation, we saw 9-11 happen. I was in high school. I didn't have a compelling, like, I must serve based on that. Like a lot of my peers did. It was more of a, if I don't do it now, I can't, come back to the construction industry later, uh, you know, I can't do it, vice versa. So that's kind of what got me to the Marine Corps through AM and a little bit non-standard career path, if you will, leading up to the Marine Corps advice. A lot of kids at a especially in the Corps of Cadets, you know, giant ROTC program, a lot of people just know that that's what they want to do and, and have that path and that goal in mind. And that, that really wasn't me. So after commissioned, I became an artillery officer. So my MOS is 0802. Inside the Marine Corps, traditionally, we've had predominantly cannons, which is the howitzer system. So my lieutenant years, I was stationed out in Japan, a unit called 312, and we would shoot howitzers all throughout the Indo-PACOM and, and a lot of the areas of, you know, off-island. So we were stationed on Okinawa, um, but due to um, basically political and civilian um Constraints or concerns, really. We would, we'd agreed with the Japanese back in 1994, we'd shoot, you know, cannons and a lot of our long range stuff off island. So that was, uh, you know, 2010 11 timeframe. So that was before the current focus or shift to the Indo PACOM specifically. So it was an interesting time that, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq are still occurring, but we're still in Japan. Doing theater security cooperation is kind of the umbrella for that. So from there, moved on to Fort Lauderdale, Florida was where I was stationed on a unique job or kind of winning the lottery, if you will. It's called the uh, MSG program. So Marine Security Guard, all the Marines and security, all the Marines that live at and secure embassies or consulates around the world are divided into regions. And each region has usually four captains, a lieutenant colonel and a first sergeant that really just travel down, make sure that they are, you know, Preventing a future Benghazi, they're helping on the counter intel side, making sure Marines aren't making friends with the wrong sort of people, and then also all the life support that goes into that. So, that's where I really grew an appreciation for the relationship with the Department of State was was vital. You know, a lot of the money, but also living conditions and everything that are affected by. Um, Department of State or different bureaus or b- branches within the Department of State. So of course, walking in and having no idea or an appreciation for another culture or tribe, as I would call it, i.e. the State Department, that was a, a learning curve. And uh, it was fascinating. It was it was wildly uh, stimulating mentally for me. So I uh, love my time down there. After that, I briefed stint at school again, and then off to California. So uh, California is my last uh, fleet tour. Uh, where I did battery command. Unlike the howitzers, uh, I was on the HiMars system, which is our long range rocket system. So, did battery command with HiMars, which is 511. I uh, loved it, great time. I did not deploy with 511. They were going to go, my unit's Sierra battery was going to go back to Japan UDP. We transitioned and I shifted over to the SP MAGTAF and for CENTCOM. So, it's, uh, it's quite the alphabet soup. SP MAGTAF CRCC. So that stands for Special Purpose Marine Air Ground Task Force Crisis Response CENTCOM. <laughs> so in my opinion, anything with that many letters in it equals that we d- we do everything or we do nothing all at the same time. So the SP MAGTAF crisis response team in CENTCOM specifically was born out of Benghazi as a um, stand in crisis response force for any sort of thing that may pop up. Similar construct to a Mew which is our, in the Marine Corps' base kind of unit, you know, float around on ship. Only difference being that we were, call it a dirt debt. So we were based out of Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, Djibouti, and then we had responsibilities in Jordan, Iraq, Afghanistan. Ultimately, we did the um, the evacuation, the Neo-Kabul out of Afghanistan, and we're there kind of on this um tether, if you will. So kind of just waiting for anything to happen. In between those periods of just waiting was plenty of interaction with the training events in those local countries, um, conducting bilateral or theater security cooperation type of training events. That was my most recent deployment experience. And then here, it brought us here. So here at Notre Dame for a year to study and to gain an appreciation again from outside Marine Corps, kind of looking back in. We're glad to have you here.
0: Notre Dame, of course, has, is a school with a really strong ROTC program. I see kids in uniform all the time, just like walking over to class. It's a really intimidating feeling when you have like ROTC kids lined up in the front row sure. and yeah. you walk into class. That uniform thing. Yeah. <laughs> but you mentioned that you had a very different point of entry mm-hmm. to the military. Could you explain
1: what you mean by that? Absolutely. So as as I said, you know, my plan initially didn't include uh, the Marine Corps. But after I I joined the Marine Corps from the very outlet or the very outset, just going to OCS, my plane's late, getting there right, we get delayed, my bags don't show up, I show up to OCS about twelve hours after everybody else. They're already put into squad bays and asleep. You know, they just throw me in there like, hey, go go sleep in here. I don't have any of my checked baggage. I you know, have to ask my neighbor to like just borrow his toothpaste. <laughs> I wore the same clothes that I had flown in uh, for about three days before we could go to the store and buy new ones. All these little micro steps along the way kind of had that non traditional career path. So, fast forward to Japan, late 2010 or 2011 timeframe. And most of my peers that were stationed stateside that I went to Fort Sill with for school, they're all going to Iraq and Afghanistan, predominantly Afghanistan at that point. But I'm in Japan. So it's like there's one lieutenant from artillery that they send to Japan, like one out of the entire island, that's going to be permanent personnel. 312 uses a program called uh, UDP, Unit Deployment Program. So they have batteries that deploy from the states to Japan for six months stints, And that's how they get their force. That's how they do force generation in Japan is these short kind of little deployments um, out in Japan. So Rather than be a part of one of those, I was a permanent lieutenant that, you know, all my friends would come in for six months and go back to the States and I was staying. So, again, kind of a non standard career path of once I was in the Marine Corps. That then led me to the embassy program. Again, a very small point for. Officers on the on their B billet or their non fleet tour, very you know kind of unique situation because you know to put it in perspective, there's probably a couple hundred off, couple hundred captains that are out on recruiting. There's several hundred that are on the depots, you know making making marines at both Paris Island and San Diego. Uh, there's 36 total captains out there on the embassy program just by the design of that program. So very small, very um, strange program. And then from there, that most people, most Marine officers, a lot of the Marines as well, take that as a transition point into the State Department or into various agencies that they're exposed to. You know, DEA, FBI, you know, CIA, all these various entities that may or may not touch embassies that you work at, that's a good launching point Mm -hmm. for a career from, you know, your Marine Corps time. Um, And I had seriously considered that as well. I, I was considered or I was considering making the jump and I Applied um, to uh, to go through the DEA process as a bunch of my peers did, all of which went went ahead and followed through. But the only reason the thing that brought me back for the Marine Corps was that I hadn't, you know, I hadn't experienced that traditional time as a lieutenant. Mm-hmm. I didn't have that time in Iraq and Afghanistan. I didn't have some of the quote like normalcy of a lot of my peers. So that's what kind of kept bringing me back. And then here I am, you know, yet again on a strange one-off, you know, all my peers really are over at command and staff or at Naval, Road, you know, Naval War College in Rhode Island. And I'm here by myself as the only Marine <laughs> as in the War College. So I seem to keep finding myself uh, unique positions where for good or for bad, I'm not sure, you know, they're going to send me there alone and uh, figure it out. Right. I mean,
0: about the embassy protection program. And when you were telling me about this, I was just fascinated because I'm someone who wants to work in embassies, maybe for ambassadors yeah. and work with the State Department. Mm-hmm. And I've always thought that the State Department and the DOD have like a really contentious relationship. Yeah, they absolutely. hate each other's guts. Absolutely. And to think of having like an actual Marine work through state just seemed to me like a point where all that tension would kind of come and yeah. like fall upon you. Yeah. So like what's your well, what was
1: your experience like kind of the yeah. interagency dynamics there? Absolutely. Great question. A lot of times I think looking out from the outside in you see it as competitors right mm-hmm. state department and the marine corps or state department military writ large is it's a competition for resources right it's a competition for money out of the budget or it's a competition for you know who's in charge right so many times you know in the military right based on the personalities that uh, we attract and that you know grow and get promoted through the military there's a there's that like drive to be in charge to have that that, you know, a type of person who's got control at all times, positive control. And that sometimes does not mesh well within the State Department. Right. Very different culture, very different. Just the language, you know, tribalism within um, state versus tribalism within the military is like, how do you even speak the same languages? Because reality is you don't. They would never use the word enemy. They use the word adversary. Right in the, in the Marine Corps, like everybody, it's not my friend; is my enemy, right? right. And I, I want to kill them, which when, is a very binary, simplistic way of looking at it, right? But the State State Department doesn't see it that way. It's very different than that. When I first talked to people from the military,
0: again, which was the first time, like at Notre Dame, mm-hmm. I was like, they'd say enemy, and they'd say it without like any mm-hmm. anger, or just they'd like immediately say enemy, and I was like, I was just taken aback because yep. I'm like. I've always been trained in, like, the diplomatic method yeah. of adversary. You don't right. assume a kind of antagonistic relationship. Right. but just-
1: Why is he got to be my enemy? Yeah, <laughs> yeah what, what do you do to me? <laughs> like, he didn't do anything to me to make him my enemy, so why is he my enemy? Yeah. So those are just, like, entirely different cultures. Yeah, so, the, so the, like, the lingo, right? The languages is very different. How, they, how their teams are designed, right? How you view, you know, people that are getting promoted within their systems, right? So, for example... When you're at an embassy, a lot of times my experience was, you know, I'll talk to somebody and, you know, I'd be like, well, you know, they would always throw back, well, I work for the ambassador, right? And it's like, okay, well, yes, that's right. But we all work for the ambassador. That's like, you know, me and the the Marine Corps, right? That'd be like if every every Marine I talk to, you know, I tell them like, well, I work for the commandant of the Marine Corps. It's like, well, yes, we all work for the commandant. Like, so... It's just they have a very flat structure, right? They don't have a a hierarchy like we do. There's a little bit, right? There are ranks and there's a way to be promoted within different bureaus. But the way that they view that and what that status is is very different than it is in the Marine Corps. So competency in what you do is very important vice just being the rank on your collar, if that mm-hmm. makes sense. Right. Right. So you don't wear, you don't walk around with, you know, wearing rank and, you know, last name. Uh, you also, most times, most embassies are, are a little more informal when it comes to term, you know, names um, almost everyone's on a first name basis. So that leads itself to breaking down those barriers that you come with a cash structure like that is set up for the military. And that and the military has that for a good reason. But what the what the State Department, you know, what they're trying to get out of the people that work there is not this like, I have to do what I'm told, right? There's no when I say jump, you say how high, right? Like to use that adage out of right. a military stance. They don't have that in the State Department because they don't need that. Mm-hmm. Right? They need independent thinkers, they need people that can challenge the status quo and can openly disagree with an opinion that's even a State Department opinion or, you know, a chief of mission opinion in that embassy and a policy of how it works. And that's that's how their system is designed. So it is a clash on the outside. But from the inside, looking out, once I'm there, I was fascinated how well it works. It really works great. I mean, it's you know, the the Marines, you know, the biggest thing is, is like you have to be willing to learn. Right. I tell all the Marines that are down there and I tell all the, you know, the leadership, like the, the gunnies that are going down there is like. Listen first. Like when you meet people in state, don't assume that they don't like you because you're in the military, right? Because nine times out of 10, it's not that people don't like each other or there's a clash. It's just a misunderstanding. It's a misalignment of expectations. So if you can communicate through what your expectations are or what you're there to do, you get along great mm-hmm. because you're not competitors, right? So going all the way back to where the Marine Corps came from, you know, when Presley O'Banion's like, I got to go, you know, it's basically. Got to go rescue some people on a on a diplomatic mission, right? So that that is where a lot of our foundation really comes from, and it it pulls all the way back to we are there like the military as a whole is there to serve a political end, right? It's not the military isn't serving its own policy. We're not filling. We're not starting a policy, filling and following through with their own policy. We are there as a branch, an option for national power for, um, you know, diplomacy, honestly, Um, you know, a lot of embassies will use their military attaches in a fashion of mill to mill engagements. So like teaching and training and, um, you know, helping out with local militaries, you know, just bringing in the U.S. military to show, um, you know, backing and resilience of that, like building those partnerships and alliances through, you know, diplomacy. It's fascinating how much of the military is involved inside of the State Department in different capacities. Obviously, the MSG program where I was is just on a security level, mm-hmm. but there's a lot of other military through advisors and different bureaus that help you know State Department um, complete their mission. You know, in the diplomatic world. When you first told me about it, I was like, "That sounds like something
0: that I actually might want to do," and I've never considered joining the military. Going back to your lieutenant years. Could you go back could you go back to your experience in Japan? Mm-hmm. Looking back now, do you have any reflections about your time there? And especially when you're talking about the military military relations. When I usually think of American station abroad, I think they're either in like a training capacity where they're training the local population. But you were telling me that it's not often that, it's often you learning from the other militaries. So could you kind of
1: go into that? Absolutely. So As I earlier, I said, when we shot off island, um, the island being Okinawa, Japan, uh, we would spend a lot of our time specifically for artillery based on ranges and things like that, like distances that you can shoot it. Uh, We would spend it in Korea, on the mainland of Japan, up at Fuji or Sendai or up in Hokkaido, Um, also down in the Philippines, Thailand, Australia has a lot nowadays, spend some time in Singapore, Malaysia, all of these countries really love to spend time with U.S. military, either In something kinetic, like learning each other's military systems, or sometimes just on an educational piece, right? It's like the cultural experiences, just getting together, having tea or having, you know, whatever the local drink is, goes a long way in building those relationships and they're strategically vital partners and allies throughout the region, um, that's such a fundamental piece for us in the military, uh, as well as like the Marine Corps specifically. Is the Marine Corps is tiny, and and there's no, you know, if if there's a conflict, right, is it's not the Marine Corps that's able to go in and do these things unilaterally. Like we're we're way too small, but it is built through building those relationships, those interpersonal connections with people that are of similar rank or similar status inside uh, those countries. It's easy to remember friends I have in Korea that I've met and and still on Facebook friends, um, lieutenants there. And it's funny how that all kind of like comes together and you may see them again one day and you may spend time, you know, working together and, and, you know, hopefully not in a conflict, but possibly again in a conflict in the future. When When you go to these exercises or you go to some of these regions, the biggest thing that was always stressed upon to me was like, first of all, like you're in, you're, you're a guest, right? You're like, so imagine if, if the role was reversed, right? You would want to, you'd want the person that's coming in to be willing to listen and to learn and to try things. So for me, it was always like, okay, try to learn the language, right? If I can learn just the simple, like, hello, goodbye, and you know, how to order a beer, right? Then I'm probably okay. Uh, and I may butcher it as I go through it. And I may get laughed at as, uh, you know, my Anyang Aseo may not be the right way for it to say hello in in, uh, in Hangul, right, for for Korea. But at the same time, just the attempt with a smile goes such a long way, especially when you're coming from the stance of, like, you're the U.S. military, you're in a uniform, right? It can be very daunting, right? You're, you know, I got all this weaponry, I got this kit on, I got all this stuff on, but I'm willing to take my Kevlar off, smile, say hello, and try to, you know, try to speak your language. That is, that, that like, opens the door for a lot of the bridge building that's vital for what you're doing there beyond being able to just, you know, try to learn a little bit is really just being able to listen. So when these, in these exchanges uh, for military exchanges, a lot of times we would spend two to three days sometimes solely on their equipment. So, you know, as an artillery guy, it'd be, you know, the Korean, you know, paladin or or whatever the rock Marine Corps uses, right? Um, They have like a self-propelled artillery piece. The Marine Corps use, U S Marine Corps doesn't have that, but it doesn't matter because The tactics and the techniques and their procedures of how they go about things, especially when you take into account the climate, right, where we're at, Um, all these little things, these little ways that they can conduct business help me learn, right? So not only is it a way, a way, right, not the way to do something, but it's something that I may be able to implement in that climate in the future, right? When you go to these extreme, I mean, Korea, I don't understand that peninsula, crazy, crazy cold and crazy, crazy hot. Like it is like, I don't, it's never temperate there. So how do you, how do you live in that crazy, hot, humid environment in the summer? They may have an idea, right? Like people that live there year round have a better, may have a better sense of that than what, you know, you come in and think you're going to do. Same with food, same with extremes of cold or whatever. So you don't have to necessarily know it all. You just have to know who to be able to learn from, right? Know who to follow, know who to listen to. And and in those situations, a lot of times in Indo-Pacific, it's not necessarily another US service member, right? It's not necessarily, it's not the army or the air force or another marine. It it's the rock marine corps, right? It's the rock lieutenant like, "Hey, like why are you doing that?" and he shows you like, "Oh wow, okay, that makes a lot of sense." Mm-hmm. Same down, you know, and that goes across the board, you know, you know, Philippines, Thailand, it's very common for us to go in and learn first and then teach second, right? So, like, there's always an exchange where we do spend time showing our weapon system off or show the latest and greatest changes and implement updates, if you will, that have come down from the U.S. military side as well. So, definitely a two-way street vice just one, one set of uh, people learning.
0: Yeah, and honestly, growing up, I had a lot of friends who'd go into the Korean military and the Singaporean military. And that was always crazy for me. Like, one day they were in class, and the next day they were just shipped off. Yeah. And, like, that... Model of compulsory service. Yeah. I'm sure it creates a very different culture. It does. And did you kind of face that? And
1: what are your takeaways or reflections about that? Absolutely. So that was that was uh, mind blowing to me. Is I, I had never experienced, you know, compulsory service until I went to Korea, and then seeing how people of any rank, so regardless of rank in their services, you have those that join the military to be in the military for the long haul as a career. But you might have a big chunk of your population that's around you, either young lieutenants or even young enlisted Rock Marines who are just doing their two years and are on like a hiatus hiatus from college. It's fascinating because you have a, your, your demographic of which you're pulling your population from is the entire population, right? So not, you don't have to serve in just in the military in Korea. Um, you can serve in other ways. There's options that aren't necessarily you know, armed, armed services, but what's fascinating is you have a higher population of those that are in college or are working on college, sometimes some of the translators that we had that were phenomenal, but very young. Like you're talking like privates or lance corporals in the Marine Corps, so extremely low ranked enlisted Iraq Marines, and they're finished with their undergrad. They're like midway through their masters, and like they're going to get a PhD, right? So like the, that demographic or that scenario is not the same on the United States side. We pull from a different population, uh, as well as you know people gravitate towards what they. Are doing well. so like if you if you have your undergrad and you're motivated you're working your master's and your PhD it doesn't mean you can't enlist but a lot of times that that lends itself towards an officer and somebody that maybe wants to do long more long term career or something like that so it's a very interesting conversation and thought process that they have people of all walks of life and they're there because they have to be. They're there because they want to be. They are there to just gain that time, gain that service, gain that experience, so that they can leverage it later in life doing something else. All of that kind of coming together in you know these short little two-year cycles where everybody's like rotating in in and out of their units blew my mind. Very, very, very interesting. Um, and you know, I I don't know that we would ever get to a system like that in the United States. Our culture is not that of you know compulsory service, and obviously. North Korea, like existential threats are what drive some of those, some of the reasonings behind those things, which we don't necessarily have. So I don't know if we could ever get there, but it it would be a, I would, I would be amazed to see (laughs) compulsory service in the United States and uh, what that would do to our youth as they grow up and become doctors and bankers and everything Mm -hmm. else, um, having done some sort of, you know, national service. It's Mm an interesting, interesting conversation.
0: I like the idea of everyone serving. But immediately when someone tells me that you have
1: to serve for yes. two years, I'm just like, no, I'm not going to do it. So yes. it's, a, it's a
0: very... Exactly. I, I think it's a tough it is. pill to swallow yeah, for no, and,
1: that, and that's valid because... And that's that's how we we're, were raised. That, that is a, a value, right, in the United States. And it's like freedom, right? Freedom of <laughs> choice, right? right? Freedom of what we do and, and how we do it in our society. So just the term alone, compulsory service, it's like that is is, you know, at the surface level that's that's counter to our freedoms, right? right? right. Like freedom of like, what we do with our lives. So, I, like I said, I, I don't think that would ever be a thing here, but it's just a, a very interesting fantasy to, to walk yourself through. So. <laughs> and finally, part of the goal of this
0: mini-series is to kind of introduce the fellows we have at NDIS mm-hmm. to both the undergraduate fellows, undergraduate political science students and other interested students, and the Notre Dame family at large. So, If anyone wanted to reach out to you and say, hey, Greg, I want to talk about this, what are things that you feel like you have experience or interest and you'd like love to get, talk more about and learn more about?
1: Yeah. Um, So one of the first things is uh, my, that I kind of glossed over is my time in the HIMARS unit out in California. The Marine Corps bought a new system called the Rogue Nemesis. Uh, It's an, it's a, an unmanned platform that's able to shoot, are um, legacy, uh, like rockets off the High Mars called Gimler's. It also can put an anti-ship capability on it called the Nemesis. This anti-ship capability, again, is part of that pivot and shift into the, into PACOM as a uh, credible you know, ship-killing missile. So with this capability that the Marine Corps has never had before, the Marine Corps has taken a position in support of the Navy. So when you look at sea power, sea control, The Marine Corps taking a, there's old units being reorganized into these MLRs throughout uh, Okinawa and Hawaii, and that stands for Maritime, sorry, Marine Littoral Regiment. Uh, And those littoral regiments are basically designed around this system, this anti-ship system, to live off the land, to be very small units dispersed. uh, Dispersion throughout the Indo-PACOM and some of these units, sorry, some of these island chains is where the focus has kind of shifted, so that system coming online was kind of kind of broke the mold for how we we buy and procure things. There's a great book out there. I think I'm getting into your ahead of you here, but my you know one of my favorite books is Kill Chain, uh, and it explains how we have used procurement in the past, back in Eisenhower's days, and then how we currently use procurement, uh, the differences, and what what works and what doesn't, and so the system that came online, the Road Nemesis. Is kind of fascinating. We haven't seen it operationally out there yet. They are, they have been fielded. So we've seen them, you know, shooting rockets, but haven't done their deployments yet. Coming up soon on their first deployment. So love to talk about that Rogue Nemesis program, the Afghanistan, Hkaya Neo-Kabul. Neo out of Kabul was interesting times. Love to talk about that. Spent a lot of time. So the CENTCOM time, uh, I was in Djibouti. So spent time down in Djibouti doing, you know, strange, like, kind of like, like, work for CENTCOM, but live in AFRICOM. So, almost like some bureaucracies or red tape involved there, a little bit of that time. And then beyond that is um, I could go into a lot more depth on uh, State Department time and specifically some of the South American problem sets as, um, as I traveled to all those MCs and consulates in South America for three years. So, Southcom is a very different beast from the mm-hmm. military's outlook. And um, even as, as, as America looks at the world, that's not, a, that's not necessarily a military area where we spend a lot of our time. We use a lot of our other uh, agencies down there. And that's fascinating to me. So um, being exposed to that was, was a great time.
0: All right, And I think we're going to close off today with a rapid fire. Okay. Um, so what's your favorite movie? Favorite movie, Ferris
1: Bueller's Day Off.
0: <laughs> you already mentioned book. What's I a know. moment in history that
1: fascinates you? So I would say the Bay of Pigs, really it's the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. I kind of lump them together. They're probably separate, but Cuban Missile Crisis and how, how did de-escalation happen, right? Mm-hmm. It was it forced personality and that sort of stuff? That's fascinating to me. And this is the final question I almost felt compelled to ask you.
0: As an artillery person, what's your favorite piece
1: of tech? Favorite piece of tech is definitely the howitzer. So I am a big proponent of just the conventional howitzer Marine Corps, we use the M777, uh, so I'll, I'll say that. But I'm a big fan of the KISS method, you know, keep it simple, stupid. <laughs> While the Mars was great and, and the Rogue Nemesis is great, I'm simple, right? So I would rather just have a, a simple round, easy tube, you know, analog systems. Uh, so very simple cannons for me. All right.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Yep. Thank Major you. Major Greg
0: Scott, and
1: I had, a real I had a great time talking to you. I did too. Thank you so much. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Centre seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash NDISC forward slash. Or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore ISC. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Centre or the University of Notre Dame which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed
0: under SampleSwap.